They weren't nationally run and that was an overt political decision. It was an instantaneous success. Moving labour around potentially is actually very, uh, very useful to the economy as well. So the railways did in a way liberate people from the parochialism of the places in which they were living. Hello again and welcome back to this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. In today's episode, I sit down and talk to Professor Mark Casson out of the University of Reading's Business School to discuss the UK rail industry, its history, and how it's likely to change in the near future. Professor Casson is active in researching and teaching at the University of Reading's Henley Business School, is a director for the Centre of Institutions and Economic History, and in 2009 published his book, The World's First Railway System, which outlines the political and economic evolution of the railway network. We had a wide and varying discussion on everything from the history of the UK rail network to the pros and cons over nationalisation and privatisation of the sector. As ever, reference research material will be included in the description down below. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. I think it's useful to go back some time in history to look at what was happening before the railways arrived. So if you go back to the early modern period, say the 16th century, people are reliant on either the sea or roads. And so there's a lot of investment in ports and harbours, but the roads are a bit of a problem uh, because they're often maintained locally. You need bridges, but they're often not very well built. Um, and so the government begins to take more and more interest in it. Uh, in the 18th century, they introduced turnpike roads, which are basically um, allowing stagecoaches to travel at higher speeds between towns than they could if you used the ordinary roads. Um, in the late 18th century, beginning, say, about 1760, you see enormous investment in canals. And canals were for the transport of heavy freight. Mm. And it's really canals that made the Industrial Revolution possible, yeah, rather than the railways. Um, so when the railways come on the scene in 1830 or thereabouts, they're evolving from mineral lines carrying coal or stone from quarries in some cases, they were converging on rivers or canals uh, where they would be built transport uh, of, these, of, of these resources to major centres. So essentially it was tramways or dramways as they were called, which were very local kinds of railway, uh, funneling into a canal system connected to a river system, which was linking together the, the major industrial centres. So, so there were more used, at least in initially to sort of facilitate the use of canals over sort of the land to get to the canals because obviously they're you know, sort of man-made um, river systems obviously but they were obviously built to facilitate the canals and so they actually use them as a focal transport system themselves. Absolutely so when we get to 1825 or thereabouts and the debate over the Stockton and Darlington Railway which is often described as the world's first modern railway though as I'll point out in a minute that's not strictly quite true but um, the Stockton and Darlington, uh, the, the promoters were in two minds as to whether to build a canal or whether to build a railway line. And um, the canal would have had to bend round a lot because it has to go on a level. And if you have canals going uphill and downhill, you have to use locks. And every time a, a boat goes up or down, uh, water is lost. It flows on balance from high level to low level. And so canals were always problematic in the summer because the reservoirs that fed them at the top went dry, and in winter they froze over. Mm. So something that was a year the round transport was immediately appealing. And the ability to use the iron horse 
and that is the steam locomotive rather than the ordinary horse uh, to pull uh, mineral trucks along railways was seen by the pioneers of the Stockton and Darlington Railway to tip the balance in favour of the railway. So they basically evaluated these two options and decided that the railway was the thing. But still the railway wasn't run like a modern railway because they still had horse-drawn traffic as well as steam locomotive-drawn traffic. And also they allowed local publicans and other people to run uh, coaches over the railway as a sort of freelance operation. It wasn't until 1830 with the Liverpool and Manchester Railway that somebody really developed, had the vision to put together a lot of different aspects of things. So the Liverpool and Manchester Railway arose from dissatisfaction with the canals because the Duke of Bridgewater had built a canal from Manchester to the Mersey in the 1760s. But the Manchester cotton merchants thought they were being held to ransom by the canal because it had an effective monopoly mm. over freight transport. And so the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was promoted essentially to break that monopoly. But it was also designed to carry passengers because there was an advantage to merchants in Manchester being able to travel to Liverpool to sign contracts with the shippers in Liverpool who were connecting with the ocean gauge vessels there. And so the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was built straight and flat as a modern double track express railway. And indeed it still survives today as a modern express railway on exactly that route. So the Liverpool and Manchester Railway set the scene for railways in terms of high speed urban travel. And it was the first time really that the name Iron Horse really did mean something because on the Liverpool and Manchester Railway trains ran at 30 miles an hour and so people for the first time in in their lives could travel faster than a racehorse. Yeah and that's, that's inordinately faster than a canal and also from the sounds of it as well the option was chosen because you could actually transport much more people on the, those things than you could a canal as well so it wasn't just about freight that you would sort of more idea to use a canal for. Um, but it was also feel that you could also like, carry people and that sort of idea of moving labour around potentially is actually very, uh, very useful to the economy as well. One thing people didn't expe uh, anticipate right at the beginning was the dangers of the railway. But um, a politician, Huskisson, was actually killed on the opening day of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. And that made people very well aware of the fact that high speed trains uh, can um, derail and cause uh, damage to passengers at freight. But they can also be conflicting movements at junctions so that trains can collide head-on or side-on if you don't have proper signalling. To begin with, they had railway policemen, but policemen were soon replaced by a mechanical system of levers in signal boxes. Mm. And ever since then, the, the, the key to railway operation has been the timetable. Trains must run to time, not only for the benefit of passengers' uh, punctuality, but also to keep to the timetable to minimise conflicting movements. And every time a train starts running late, it starts conflicting with the paths being taken by other trains. It arrives at its destination late and it starts back late. So a lot of the skill in railway management ever since 1830 has been in devising a robust timetable and putting in operational measures to ensure as possible trains keep to time, not just for the passenger's benefit, but for the benefit of the system as a whole. Yeah, and am I right in thinking, particularly in sort of those first um, public passenger railways, they were all privatised, if that's my said, they weren't nationally run? 
They weren't nationally run, and that was an overt political decision. Um, Liverpool and Manchester was opened in 1830. It was an instantaneous success. But railway building, in, in a big way, didn't really get going until about 1845. One reason for this was turbulence in the capital markets. During the 1830s, um, there were a lot of problems with the money supply and, and with political um, anxieties, uh, and that deterred investment. But things began to stabilise around 1840. So up till about 1840, the only railways that were built were mainly railways on the Liverpool and Manchester model, which was connecting a metropolis, in their case Manchester, to a port, Liverpool. The other railways were, for example, London and Birmingham, connecting uh, a port, London, and the great metropolis, to the industrial centre of Birmingham. The London and Southampton, London to Dover, these were the kinds of lines that were built, but they weren't part of a national network. They were simply individual lines connecting important places, typically to London or to other important cities. Yeah, so it still sounds, even though at that point, it's still very industry-driven because obviously at that time, manufacturing and industry in the UK was obviously predominantly done in the north of England. So again, the Manchester, Liverpool, that's a, you know, as you said, the reason you do that is because you're linking to um, manufacturing and industry hubs for people and like I say, to a port as well, so you could actually export the goods as well. It wasn't necessarily incorporated so that you could connect, you know, a high populous place with other high populous places. It's very, all very much industry driven still at that stage. Yeah. So the more settled financial conditions led in 1845 to the first railway mania. And this was basically where, believing that there was ample capital available for investment, lots of schemes were floated to connect relatively minor places to each other and with a greater emphasis on serving intermediate towns that lay between the cities rather than just the cities at either end of the railway line. Um, and at this point, a, a political um, controversy developed, not between parties, but within a party, between um, Sir Robert Peel, who led the, the Tory party, who was a, a businessman based uh, in Bury near Manchester, and he argued that businessmen were the right people to decide whether a railway should be built because they uh, understood finance and railways were ultimately built for the benefit of the business community in promoting the movement of, of managers and clerks for business purposes and promoting the movement of freight. On the other side was the president of the Board of Trade, um, William Gladstone, who took a very different view. Gladstone thought that by 1845, it was time to think in terms of a national network, national system of connectivity, a kind of system of iron roads that replicated the ordinary road system. Hmm. So what Gladstone wanted to do was to organise railway schemes so that Parliament only chose schemes that would fit in to a coherent network. Hmm. But this was very unpopular with local members of Parliament because local members of parliament were mandated by their local electorates to get us a railway act. And being told by a bunch of uh, civil servants in the Board of Trade that they couldn't have a railway because it didn't fit in with some integrated national plan uh, was not good for politics. Yes. And so what effectively happened is that the um, members of parliament all basically took Peel's line and rejected Gladstone's line. And what they did, basically, was they authorised each other's schemes. 
MPs weren't allowed to vote basically on their own railway scheme, but they could make deals with other MPs. I'll back yours if you back mine. And in that way, a vast number of schemes were built, which far exceeded the capacity of the capital market to finance them. And so as a result of many failed schemes, that failed financially before they'd even got built, um, the railways got off to, in a way, a bad start, because instead of being associated with successful promotions, they were associated with the loss of personal fortunes by many railway investors who'd invested in these schemes that never got built. And it wasn't really then until the 1860s, the period of the so-called second railway mania, 1860 to 66, that the network as we sort of would recognise it uh, at the turn of the century, around about 1900, it was at that stage that the network got completed. Hmm. And at that stage in the 1860s, a lot of cross-country lines were built to actually fulfil the Gladstonian agenda of providing a national network. But until, until 1860 or so, it had been mainly about big cities, big ports and business interests. Yeah. And in terms of actually how we look at the sets of the, the UK rail network today, it does seem to be a lot more in line with, I would, I would assume, Gladstone's view for what the, the rail network should be, right, in terms of that sort of integrated, connected system, I would say. Well, we've come to think these days in terms of public infrastructure. And I think many people would accept that the rail network is, in principle, a high-speed public access variant of the road network. And so we are accustomed to thinking, is railway or road the best? Should road be a feeder to the railways? Um, how can we integrate the transport? But there is still a, a lot of thinking along the lines of evaluating each railway line, each part of the railway system on its own. And in 1964, when um, the industrialist Richard Beecham was asked to, by the government to look at railway economics, Beeching did to some extent take a let's look at it line by line point of view. So he did have a skeleton network of, in, of, of long distance connectivity. But at the local level, he was quite happy to look at the economics of a single line in isolation from the other lines in the area and to make decisions on, those, on that basis alone. And to some extent, this depends on whether you believe that you can accurately assess the sort of social value of a line by just looking merely at the traffic carried on that line, or whether you want to assess its social value as a, as a sort of part of a national network that operates as a whole. That dilemma has always been with us since, since the 1860s. Yeah, I see. And there was a, obviously a very notable changes sort of as uh, in the sort of early 1900s with you know, up with World War One um, and the rail networks basically being coming under the uh, control of the UK government, and then in sort of the nineteen twenties, um, most most notably in nineteen twenty one, with the government sort of merging, sort of I think it was about one hundred and twenty odd rail companies into just four regional companies as well. So there was a lot. The war had a very sort of strong impact on the, the rail industry in the UK as well. I think uh, the war certainly did have an impact, but I think it brought to a head things that have been developing for 40 years before. Because in 1870, William Gladstone, as I just mentioned, became Prime Minister, and he was Prime Minister on and off four times in his career. Now, Gladstone had been thinking about what he was going to do 
when he became prime minister, for a long time before he became prime minister. And so he started out with a clear view of what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was basically to unify a potentially divided country. He wanted to overcome the kind of Marxist clash between capital and labour, which was a sort of feeling developing within industry and was beginning to impair productivity in industry. So what Gladstone wanted was a railway system that would promote social integration. So he saw railways as being for working class people as well as for business, businessmen and their managers. Um, he saw the railways as facilities which would allow workers to go on holiday to seaside resorts. So he passed also factory legislation and other legislation which indirectly served to raise the incomes of ordinary workers, to give the obligatory statutory holidays, and he thereby created a low-income market for railway travel that hadn't existed before. And this in turn acted as a financial incentive on the railway companies to pay much more attention to what third-class passengers wanted from the system than before with their, current, their preoccupation on what first-class passengers wanted from the system. At the same time with freight, um, there was much more emphasis on supporting industries and local economic development, um, and also a greater emphasis on, on signalling and, and safety and station provision for passengers. Gladstone's package worked because between 1870 and 1914, he bore down quite heavily on the railway companies, obliging them to raise their game. But the fact he was bearing down also on industry and regulating that indirectly created more traffic for the railways. So he was actually giving the railways a new source of profit out of which they could fund the improvements that he wanted to see made. So effectively, when the First World War came, there was already a concept of the social railway. Mm. So when the railway got run down, it wasn't really a revolutionary idea to group the companies. It was to some extent a natural evolution of the tendencies that Gladstone himself had promoted through public policy. Which I think is actually quite an interesting point that you sort of bring up there, that there's when um, when you're just looking at the, the creating those railways for, for businessmen and industry, it's normally looking at a very specific thing. I, I know if I make this railway to here, how much money can we generate in terms of this specific venture? I think often what's sometimes lost in those discussions, I think is actually potentially a, a good positive point for actually sort of in terms of nationalising railways, is that there's a lot of peripheral effects that actually can sort of benefit and sort of boost an economy, as you said having sort of those more broader rail networks just so that working class people could take holidays and things like that expands the market, increases the standing and standard of living for the general public and also increases spending in a new market as well. So I think in that regards, I think there's maybe some arguments to be made that a privatised or a fully privatised um, rail industry or rail network maybe wouldn't be as beneficial for the economy as a nationalised one. Well, there were also social implications as, as well. I mean, if you look at railway postcards and railway photography from the 1880s and 1890s, and by which time, of course, photography was very well developed. Photography almost developed about the same time as the railways and in step with it. But photographs from the 1890s show very clearly 
that a, a significantly high proportion of passengers waiting on station platforms were women unaccompanied by men. They were often traveling alone. In some cases, they were traveling with other women. Quite often, they were traveling with their children. And they were obviously middle class rather than working class women because they would need to be middle class to afford the fares to, to go on the railway for sort of leisure purposes. But it appears that they were in a way, in fact, maintaining relations with their relatives. They were traveling to visit or stay with relatives. They were taking the children with them on excursions or holidays or whatever. Um, and in a way, for the Victorians, this was a striking phenomenon. So there are a number of Victorian artists who took to doing portraits of women on railway stations to capture this sort of social innovation. So the railways did in a way liberate people from the parochialism of the places in which they were living mm. and allowed people therefore to see much more of the country. In that sense, they may have helped to create a, a stronger sense of national identity, which actually was useful, for example, in the First World War, because people knew more about their country and therefore their loyalties were not purely local. And of course, the, Victor the reign of Queen Victoria and the development of empire had also increased this sort of outward looking view. So the railway system, in a way, arguably, did contribute to people acting as more effective citizens and being able to think more broadly with better information about the state of the country as a whole. It's funny, actually, because even today, I think there's a lot of use of that potentially even by the, the UK government. For example, with the HS2 project, the whole idea is that it's going to link sort of the north and south a lot more, hopefully to bring sort of more economic prosperity into the north, sort of the northern regions as well, which notoriously there's been a bit of a north-south divide in the UK in the last you know, however many years, decades or whatnot. So I think that's a very conscious um, effort by the government to try and mitigate that to the very points you said to create sort of a more singular culture within the UK, mm. but also um, increase the economic, economic prosperity of the North as well. Yeah. But I mean, you mentioned about the, the arrival of the Big Four, mm. uh, which was finalised in 1923. So the Big Four were the London, Midland and Scottish, the London North East and the Southern and the Great Western. Um, and uh, a few minor railways retain their independence, but 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 uh, uh, only obviously in a very small way. And were those were those companies still privatised at those times? But they they were privatised, yes. But um, remember, with the the legacy of Gladstonian thinking, mm. the railways recognised that they needed to operate with the sort of consent of the state. Mm. But a particular challenge for the railways was an indirect consequence of the First World War where a lot of motor vehicles had been developed for wartime use. And after the war, these were sold off as army surplus. And so a lot of motor vehicles, particularly lorries, came into the hands of troops who'd been discharged from the army, who were looking for work. And those who couldn't find work often thought, well, I'll buy some army surplus trucks and I'll set up a, um, a, a lorry business. And the railways, of course, had a highly sort of structured way of dealing with freight. They would collect freight from a local station yard, take it up to the nearest big city where there'd be a marshalling yard. They shunt the wagon into some other train. 
which would then go over to some other wagon yard in some other part of the country to be shunted again and then sent off back to its sent off to its final destination. But a rail a, a lorry could come more or less to your door, pick up the consignment, and over the road system deliver it straight door to door. So the railways suddenly found that they were losing a lot of the freight. The motor bus, the Sharabank as it was, which originally was just for carrying tourists from stations to view uh, coastal resorts and mountains that didn't have rail access, turned into the local bus. And the local bus could drive you straight into the marketplace to do your shopping, whereas the railway might take you to the town, but it might leave you at a station on the periphery of the town, and you'd have to walk into the town and back again, heavy laden with your shopping, to take it back home. So the bus and the lorry were major threats to the railways. And so the railways, in effect, wanted to team up with the government in the hope of persuading the government to restrict the operations of bus and lorry companies, which the government did. And many railway companies actually were the owners of the bus companies and in some respects got very heavily involved in road distribution themselves. It's interesting because like, even I think National Express even has coach services and uh, rail services now, is that correct? I believe as well. Well, that is because under privatisation, some of the bus operators bought railway franchises. So there's always been this link between the bus sector and the rail sector. In the view of the rail sector, road was always just a feeder and the long distance hauling was always to be done by rail. Yeah. But the road view was that with better roads, you could cut out the transshipment at the stations and you could go door to door. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the, the final nail in the coffin for a lot of general merchandise traffic on railways was the development of the motorway system in the 1960s, because then you could have actually high speed road traffic uh, with larger vehicles and that made door-to-door road really uh, able to wipe out a lot of the traditional rail traffic. So if you study the statistics, say, from 1960 through to 1970, you can very easily see the dramatic impact um, that the spread of uh, motorways had on, on, on rail traffic. And by, by and large today, the only freight that goes by rail is train load, not wagon load. Yes, and I think that's actually interestingly something I, I was looking at in the research for this episode. I think there was a lot of talk about how the nationalisation of the railway sort of in the sort of the late 1940s actually decreased um, a lot of the market share um, in comparison to, so to say, the road network in terms of transportation of not just people but goods as well. Um, but quite frankly, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that I think the roads were, <laughs> were going to come in um, and the motor industry was coming for that no matter what. I don't think it was necessarily just because it was ne- the nationalisation of those railways either, I would say. The, the, like I say, the personal almost door-to-door nature of those road networks was obviously something that the rail network certainly couldn't match in that regard. And like I say, if there was a certain separation in terms of like the long, long-term freight loads which could be done by train, but could also be done by car and lorry, obviously. Well, I think um, in the the interwar period, the big four that we've talked about sort of carried on, but with a progressively declining rate of return on capital. So if you go back to the 1850s, say, railway companies could be making 10 or 15% rate of return on capital. By the time you get to the Gladstone era, 
is falling to around about 6 to 7% return on capital. Mm. Then in the interwar period, it's going down to more like 3% return on capital. And after the um, Second World War, when the British Railways Board is set up in 1948, and the big four simply become different components of British railways, by then um, the rail system really just can't pay its own way at all. Mm. and the government is stepping in to preserve it. But one of the consequences of being nationalised by a Labour government was that the management thinking in the railways was very much attuned to, if you like, the politics of nationalisation itself. And what this meant was that the railways also saw themselves as job creators and as upholding jobs not only on the railways, but in traditional industries, such as coal, iron and steel. So there was still a lot of emphasis on the carriage of coal traffic and the provision of coal traffic, which continued to be carried in very small wagons, which were often owned by the colliery companies rather than the railway companies. And so these wagons have to be returned after every journey to the colliery from which they came, which considerably reduced the versatility and therefore the utilisation of these railway wagons. Similarly, a lot of lines, a lot of small branch lines, were carrying very little traffic. But as an employer of people, the railway companies felt obliged to keep employing the signalmen, the plate layers, the station masters, the porters. And so the railways became a gigantic job creation exercise. And they were creating jobs, as I say, not only in their own industry, but also helping to salvage jobs in other industries under threat, such as the coal mining industry, where a lot of traditional coal mining areas like the North East and South Wales, the best coal had been exhausted. And the demand for coal was also being eclipsed to some degree by demand for oil. Um, so the railways had got themselves stuck really in a dreadful rut. And uh, as I say, the governments eventually began to despair that railways would ever pay for their, their own way again. And so Richard Beeching was brought in from ICI to take a hard look from, as an outsider at the railway system. And that led to the programme of Beeching Cuts, which reduced the railway system drastically in terms of its route mileage. It not only cut out a lot of country branch lines, but sadly, it also cut out a lot of long distance cross country lines that had been built to quite a high standard in the late Victorian period. And one very unfortunate legacy of that today is that the railway system today is very much what was left after Beach had hacked it about. It is shorn of many of the strategic cross-country routes that would be so useful. So if you think today about our megaports like Southampton and Felixstowe, it would be extremely useful if all parts of the country had ready access to those ports by rail. But many of the lines that they would have used were shut by beaching. And so actually, the rail system cannot serve those ports as well as it otherwise could. So we have in fact suffered from the fact that beaching took a really short-term money-saving approach to restructuring the railway system. He did not think long-term about the logistics of passengers and freight um, as they were evolving at the time. Yeah, and that's something that's definitely being talked about even right now, uh, even in sort of amongst the relative strikes of the 
the past sort of year or so is that our the note it's noted that our rail <laughs> infrastructure is quite frankly very very old and needs quite a lot of updating. I think I read somewhere that only 33% of our current rail lines are even electrified, which obviously electrification of lines allows you for higher speed trains, which is, I think, something like the one the lowest when you compare it to Europe. So I think there's a lot of talk about that. We actually need to invest more in the, the, the rail infrastructure for it to be able to benefit the economy and you know, the lives of the people and the public. The British railway system has always been backward in electrification. And... Um, the first electrified railways in Britain were built around 1900. Uh, some were standalone ventures built by Americans like the Liverpool Overhead Railway. But companies such as the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway and the London Northwestern Railway also developed electrified networks, um, basically in and around major cities, particularly Manchester, particularly Liverpool and London. Mm. But this never caught on. There was a big programme of electrification planned in the 1920s. And the Northeastern Railway did do some electrification itself. But these came to nothing and they were eventually abandoned. In the 1960s, we have the West Coast electrification, the electrification of the West Coast Main Line, which was never actually completed. Until very recently, there were still old fashioned signal boxes in Stockport on so-called high-tech lines created in the 1960s because basically the money eventually ran out and the West Coast electrification scheme was never fully completed. One reason is that first we were committed to coal and then, as another legacy of empire, we became committed to oil because we developed very large oil refineries at Milford, Haven, Grangemouth and other centres making oil supplies relatively cheap in the UK and easy to come by. And dieselization was so much easier than uh, electrification because for dieselization, you just replace the steam locomotive with a diesel locomotive. Whereas with electrification, you have to make all the changes to the infrastructure as well. So in Britain, we postponed and postponed electrification and we're not really very good at it even now. And so even today you have anomalies whereby parts of the Great Western Network are now electrified, but significant sections, such as that between Didcot and Oxford, remain unelectrified because the money keeps running out because the schemes get over budget. So we've really never actually cracked the business of being able to electrify as efficiently as most of our continental competitors have done. Has that also led to relatively, because of that and that old infrastructure, led to increased prices because the other thing that's always cited as well is the fact that we have although we spend as much more the money i think more money than anyone else in europe on our rail network and infrastructure we seem to have the highest prices as well so i don't know whether that's got something to do with it as well i think the high prices are simply a consequence of a very very badly thought out privatization strategy um, as you will know, the railways were privatised in 1994 mm -hmm. when the British Railways Board ceased to exist. And the British Railways Board had already set up a system of divisionalisation. It had already separated managerial responsibilities for passengers and freight. It already had um, regional sectors, but it also had sectors by function, such as freight liner and intercity, yeah. um, 
and it was actually making very good progress towards the introduction of um, modern trains. So, for example, the, um, the intercity 125s, which for 40 years had been the backbone of fast intercity travel in this country, were a British Railways innovation. Um, but in 1994, for various political reasons, privatisation of the railways was introduced as a kind of dogmatic move. I mean, there are obviously different accounts of what the motivations for it were, but the re reality is that it was authorised by John Major after he got into a dispute with Eurosceptic members of his own Conservative Party. And effectively, the railways were, were, were privatised according to an ideological agenda that private enterprise would be intrinsically more efficient, but that also it would be competitive and that competition between railway companies would drive down fares. Mm. Therefore, all you needed was a sort of cap on maximum fares. You didn't need a fares policy because that would be interfering with the market. You just needed competition. But the competition never materialised. No, and for the reasons where at least that I can see well, when I'm sort of doing my own research is that it, because it was done on a franchising model and that, as you said, the, the, the British Railway was broken up into various different sub-companies uh, sort of areas who would then franchise it out to private companies. But they had very, very strict um, demands that those companies then had to meet. And... For example, and they did try to do this in how they separated the company, the, the entities. They tried to make the very profitable railways uh, or routes, um, but also with some less profitable routes, so that they had to service at least both of those um, equally, or to or at least to some extent. Um, and for example, with the franchise agreements, um, they very, they very much had the right. You have to have this many trains going to here at this time, you have to be doing this, you have to, when the Queen needs to take a ride, you need to be able to do this. And there were so many demands in those franchising agreements, there wasn't actually a lot of room for the private companies to actually implement maybe cost-saving measures or actually run them in the way that they could. And so that the only real competition aspect of the of the, the private sector actually brought was actually just on the price in terms of the tendering. And what that actually led to is that companies tendering, uh, under shooting how much it would cost them essentially, and then every single t or at least a lot of the times when the uh, tender was accepted, they weren't actually able to meet those uh, contractual obligations, and then they ended up being kicked out. In a lot of instances, there are certain lines were renationalised at various points as well. Yeah, I think that um, throughout the period since nineteen ninety four, there have been a whole set of danger signals about the way things were going wrong and effectively the response from government has almost invariably been very slow and very weak. Um, I think there is little doubt that the early franchisees believed that their franchise was in their view intended as a monopoly. That is to say they were very wary of the, any rights that so-called open access operators might acquire to introduce other trains on routes that would compete with their own trains. So the companies did their absolute utmost 
to deter entry and to be as awkward as they possibly could with any firm that tried to operate its fur uh, over its trains over what they regarded as their route. So there was firstly a culture of entitlement amongst the uh, train operating companies that was unsympathetic to cooperating with other train operating companies. Um, secondly, um, these companies um, knew that, as you said, the government had written very complicated contracts, but they also knew that there were loopholes in these contracts. And so they devoted an inordinate amount of energy to actually exploiting these loopholes. To give you just one example of how these loopholes led to uh, poor quality of service. Um, and this is a well-documented instance. Um, the uh, contracts under which the franchisees operated uh, specified penalties for cancelling a train and they specified penalties for having trains running late. Mm. But these penalties weren't directly incurred by the companies in terms of loss of customer support. They were simply penalties paid to the regulator for violations of the contractual agreement. Okay. It was soon discovered that it was more profitable to cancel a late running train, particularly one early in the day, rather than to run it late. Because if you had a late running train in the morning, it would probably be arriving late, leaving on a return journey late. It would run late all day and the accumulated penalty would far outweigh the, the penalty incurred by cancellation. What this meant was that since many trains were only discovered to be running late as a result of delays en route, trains did not get to their destination because the train was cancelled before it got to its destination so it could be turned round and run on time for the rest of the day. This led on some routes to certain stations hardly ever being served by a train. And I personally remember being told by an American academic who'd arrived in this country to be interviewed for a job at Lancaster University, that she'd waited three hours at Manchester Airport Station for a train. And this was because the trains from Lancaster to Manchester were all running late and they were being turned round before they ever got to the airport. She was waiting for the airport and the trains never arrived. That's an example of, of the gamification that was going on on the network. And there was also another problem, a perennial problem, which still exists today, which is relations between the main train operating company on the route and the so-called open access operators. This has been a particular problem on the East Coast main line, where there is a principal franchisee, um, and then there are also open access operators, such as Grand Central and Hull Trains. Now, the... The, the, the main line, the main franchise holder on the East Coast main line has always alleged that the only reason that Hull trains serve Hull is because serving Hull is a pretext for getting their train onto the section of track on the main line between Doncaster and London. And what the business plan for Hull trains is, is not to carry people from Hull, it's to stop at Newark, Grantham and other stations en route and pick up passengers that would otherwise go on the franchise holders line. As a result, passengers from Hull find themselves in a position where it's extremely difficult to get to intermediate stations 
because the trains that are run by whole trains can't stop or pick up at passengers at these stations um, because they would interfere with the rights of the incumbent operator. I, I was present at a meeting only um, a, a relatively short time ago where there was a stand-up row between an incumbent operator and an um, open access operator, each of them slagging the other off on exactly the grounds I've just sat and that is about 20 years after, or 20 or more years after, open access operation, the principle of it, had been introduced. 20 years in which no resolution of that conflict of interest had actually been effected. So really, the railways were just left to sort themselves out, really, after privatisation. Because uh, my interpretation is that the privatisation was essentially an ideological gesture made by John Major to appease the, um, the, the sort of radical right wing of his own party. Nobody had any practical experience of how this franchising would operate. And when it became clear it wasn't operating properly, it was simply left to malfunction. The inconvenience was borne by the public. And of course, the ironic thing in this whole situation is the reason why those franchising agreements were so stringent or even the way they were structured in the way they were, in part, was to ensure that those smaller stations were actually being serviced. But <laughs> again, through the gamification of it, it seemed to happen like in any way. And then to some degree, I guess you could maybe argue it would have been better to have less stringent franchising agreements so that the private companies had a little bit more leeway to actually be able to, you know, you know, change their service to make it more profitable and things like that. And maybe that would have eventually led to a better service for the public, potentially. Do you think that that's potentially something that would have been effective if those franchising agreements had been a little bit less stringent and the private companies had been given a bit more leeway? Or do you think it would have maybe gone in a slightly different direction? Um, let me answer that in two parts. They're going to be rather long answers. Uh, the first is a comment on what was being debated at the time of privatisation, around about 1994. Um, I wasn't involved in that process, but I was involved in academic debate about it with quite a few academics who supported privatisation yeah. because there was at that time quite a fad. Margaret Thatcher had been privatising a lot of utilities, mm -hmm. but she never privatised the railways because she thought it was a step too far. I think notoriously she thought that she would lose a lot of uh, working class rural voters because if she did privatise it like she did the other industries, um, those areas wouldn't necessarily be serviced as much and so she would actually right. potentially lose right. other votes. And so I think even Thatcher for all her, her concerns about, you know, in terms of pushing privatisation forward, it was even scared to privatise the railways. It took someone after her to even do it. So one consequence of this was that in 1994, a lot of the argument about privatising the railways was based on the fact that railways are a network just like the electricity grid. Railways are a network just like the national gas supply. Railways are a network just like the water system. We've privatised these other systems, so why on earth not privatise the railways? Uh, they did not notice the difference. The difference is that railways carry passengers and there are 3,000 stations you can start from and there are 3,000 stations you can want to go to and there are different times of the day at which you may want to travel and different types of people who want to travel but a voltage of electricity is just a voltage of electricity 
There is none of the heterogeneity or the specificity of the requirements that's associated with the railway system. Moreover, everything in terms of gas, electricity and water simply comes to you. You remain where you are in your house and you get it. In railways, you're moving about between places and you have specific ideas of when, where and how you want to travel. Mm. So none of this, this was swept away in terms of crude analogies. Indeed, it was said, for example, that railway timetabling could be organised in the same way as flight paths. But flight paths can be can cross because planes are flying at different elevations. Yep. But trains are all on the same elevation. A minor point, nothing to worry about there. So these outrageous analogies with other network industries were the things that were actually um, used to address these issues. And then later on, when we get into the disputes that arose between the franchise operators, um, the adherents of the original privatisation were still adamant that the problem with the railways was not enough open access operators. But none of them could explain how you could allow all these open access operators onto the network and not have a mass of conflicting train movements. Because railways begin and end with the timetable. If there isn't a timetable and there's no signalling system, then there is anarchy and the system will actually break down. Railways are a very rigid system. They work wonderfully when everything is working well, but the knock-on effects of one disruption on the rest of the system can be enormous. The idea of just free walk-on competition, of I fancy putting on a service between A and B, I'll just run it when it's convenient. You can't disrupt a national timetable just for the benefit no. of, of, of access like that. It's just not so fluid enough. Nobody has really ever cracked the open access conundrum. And the idea that it could somehow be made to work so we'd better leave it there has been left festering for about 30 years, unresolved. Yeah, because the other side of this is as well is that people have a lot of criticisms about the franchising institution. And there's even been examples of where, you know, obviously franchising have basically, they've not been able to do it for people that, you know, the private companies that are able to, that tended for it. And there's instances where the, the they've been nationalised for a period in order to cope for that and they've actually been more profitable. I think the, one of the most notable examples is that on the um, the East Coast tra um, train operating company, which was previously at the time run by National Express, between 2009 to 2015 become nationalised again um, and actually went up in the ranks in terms of passenger satisfaction to fall from the country and actually generated over the period about a billion pounds in profit for the for the country and I think it's it was it's, it's one of those examples that's used that say like okay we have all these issues with making with privatizing and making a, a fully competitive rail network and we've also got instances of you know where nationalization has actually it's actually been profitable um, why are we even bothering you know why aren't we going back to just nationalizing the whole thing well I mean there's nothing of course in principle from an economic point of view wrong with having a nationalised company bidding for a franchise. So, in fact, what's happened on the East Coast Main Line is that the private operators have just gone bankrupt, just pulled out, just cancelled on the deal. Again, because of the way the contract is written, the penalty for doing that is so small that you might as well do it. Mm. So it's a contract where 
is it, where if you make a profit, you can stay. And if you start making losses, you just sort of hand the contract back and walk away. So it's been so easy for companies to avoid the risk. You know, the idea that they were bearing a large amount of commercial risk um, was illusory. Basically, the government, instead of selling franchises, was paying companies to take them. And in paying companies to take them, they, they, they made it easy for companies to walk away so that companies would accept less money for taking on the franchise because there was less risk. So when the government operators took over, they basically simply took over um, with a view of optimising essentially public satisfaction. And the irony is that the private companies have not been investing in their own brand value in the way that the, the rhetoric of privatisation is suggested. It was suggested that no railway company privately would ever treat its customers badly because of the negative effect on the brand. But, I mean, I know from my first-hand experience that um, when rail companies are discussing pricing affairs and timetabling, they're, they're, the, the norm they assume is that the rail traveller is what they call a distressed traveller, which means you're only going by rail because you have to, because you can't walk, there's no convenient bus, you don't own a car, the motorways are congested, the, air, uh, you know, uh, the, the airports are closed because of fog. You only go by rail because you have to. So the whole approach was, let's get as much money out of people as we can while they're in this vulnerable position of having to travel by rail. Whereas when the state-owned franchisees came and took over, they started to develop the traffic and started to say, we believe in this mode of transport, we want more people to use it. So one group, the private group, are basically saying, our business model is to squeeze as much money out as we can out of those who have to use the railways, because nobody who had a real choice would choose to use the railways anyway. And the government is the one that's taking the, um, the traffic creation model. So that is why the privatised operators uh, really out uh, well outperformed by the state-owned operators. Yeah, and that's something that I really don't necessarily understand, at least from my personal experience with, for example, I can, like say, you, you make the comparison between the rail industry and the, the air traffic industry quite a lot, and the fact that actually, I mean, just when I look at personal travel for myself, when I used to travel to Loughborough when I was going to university, and this was back in, you know, sort of 2015, 2016, 2017, it used to cost me £70 returns just to get to Loughborough and back. And that, you know, that's where a rail card, you know, discounted. And yet, if I wanted to fly to Glasgow, which is a much long, further distance, it would cost me maybe sort of half the price. I've never sort of been able to wrap myself head round why necessarily it, it costs so much less money to fly a longer distance than it does to use a rail on a shorter distance. But it sounds as for those a couple of the reasons that you mentioned there, it sounds as they're actually you you're only using those rail networks potentially when in a very fun, vulnerable position when you don't really have much other choice, and so there's a a, a point where you can sort of exactly the because if you were going to Glasgow, you'd be up against air competition, so the price has to be competitive. But it's but it, it is easier for airlines and air companies to be more competitive for the reasons that, as you said, in terms of the flight paths. You, multiple companies can come in and take different flight paths and at different altitudes, right? That you know, mm. you can miss train. With train lines and networks, you just don't necessarily have that. 
unless you were potentially to, I mean, there's a lot of talk about particularly in um, LA, for example, with like the boring company, with what Elon Musk is doing to actually create, not necessarily train networks, but hyperloops and road networks underground to sort of mitigate some of the traffic issues they have there. Maybe that's the only necessary situation I could see where trains knows that could be maybe privatized and it'd be a little bit more effective in terms of competition. But the amount of money and infrastructure it would take to create all those um, different uh, you know tunnels and things, I think it, was, it would just be enormous. And I don't think it would necessarily be, we wouldn't get a great return on investment. I think one of the disappointing aspects of the present situation that we're in is that if you want to effect a, a modal shift that is to say you want to get more and more people to think in terms of using my car isn't the first port of call that's the the the, the sort of standard default is to just jump in the car and drive mm. that the default becomes to use the bus and go to the station and get a train if you're going to actually provide a network that is a national network that, that encourages a culture, normalizes the culture of, of going by train or public transport, you've got to have, in, in my view, an integrated system. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that it shouldn't be subsidized. In, in economic terms, there is a perfectly good case for subsidizing activities where the marginal cost of travel is below the average cost of travel. And the railway is a, is a classic example of this because the marginal cost of you sitting on an empty seat in a train is zero virtually because otherwise, you know, the, the seat would still have to, the train would still be going. Trains are already running and I don't add that much weight that it uses that much more energy to trample <laughs> to use. Exactly. So what you would really want is a kind of social cost benefit analysis which would look at the overall impact of modal shift in the population as a whole. And that would be looking at uh, the balance between air transport, road transport, in roads between motoring, cycling and so forth. We see lots of practical examples on the roads, for example, of promoting modal shift with the development of cycle lanes and changes in the highway code. Um, and that has a cost to motorists because it means that Car journeys now take longer because there's a cycle lane at the lights. So instead of two lines of traffic at the lights, there's only one line of traffic at the lights. It means there's queues to overtake cyclists, whereas before people would have just driven straight past and knocked them in the gutter. Yep. So, so effectively, in certain areas, we're perfectly capable of making um, policy decisions directed at intermodal choice. But when it comes to railways, we are fighting a 1980s style Thatcherite debate over privatization versus public ownership. And it seems to me that it's just the railways misfortune that they have become the ongoing battleground for this ideological contest. And the consequence of this is that the administration and regulation of railways, for example, by the Department of Transport, has also become politicized. Um, I've given a couple of presentations to the Department for Transport on roughly the range of topics we're covering now, one of which was attended by more than 150 staff in the department. Um, and I know that there are lots of well-meaning, very able people in the Department for Transport, 
But essentially, their agenda is partly just to keep the system running for heaven's sake, especially during COVID and during strikes. Mm. But also, it is appeasing the whims of politicians. So we haven't discussed Great British Railways, but Great British Railways was introduced about two and a half years ago um, uh, and as under the guise of the Shaps-Williams plan. Um, and there's another initiative which is completely stalled because, basically, of political conflicts within the governing party rather than between governing parties um, over how far the franchises should be turned into subcontractors who are merely paid to run trains but don't keep the revenue. Yes, my understanding is now that since the COVID-19 pandemic and quite frankly, obviously, with the shutdowns and the lockdowns, franchisees were just unable, <laughs> obviously, as you would imagine, uh, to meet their obligations. My understanding with what happened that it's actually moved to a concession model in which uh, the government essentially pays all the costs for the, that the private private entities or companies that are operating the networks um, and the trains incur, plus a, I think it's a 2% maximum uh, management fee. Um, so it's moved to a, a concessionary model. Um, and, it's, and they've moved away from the franchising model. Is that, is that yes. correct? It is. Uh, but the, uh, And when the Shaftesbury plans were announced, um, Grant Shapps went on the media and he said it's ridiculous that in our signal control centres we have two sets of staff, one represented by the train operating companies, the other by Network Rail, which is government owned, um, to argue about who is responsible for what delays. Because under the contractual arrangements that the franchisees have, they are liable for delays they cause themselves. But a delay is extremely difficult to impute on a, a network, especially when you have these knock-on consequences that I was talking about earlier. So vast amounts of energy are spent, um, waste, pure waste of resources, arguing about these issues. Now, Grant Shapps comes on the media and he says, we're going to sort this out. We're going to have it that the train operating companies just run the trains. And, um, you know, Great British Railways will sell the tickets. Great British Railways will specify the timetable. Great British Railways will, will keep the ticket revenue. And the franchisees will become subcontractors and they'll just be paid a margin on the costs they incur. That will encourage them to do what they do best, which is hold down costs and leave us to, to plan an integrated national rail network. But since that time, it's become mired in political controversy within the governing party so that nothing has happened to implement this agenda and nobody knows at the moment what 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 the agenda actually is or even if the plan is still alive is it obviously as we're moving out of a post-pandemic um environment and sort of economy and we're just starting to see some sort of more normalcy return to a lot of these industries is is this concessionary model in your opinion, likely to be more successful or less successful than the franchising model? It would, in principle, be more successful, yes. But what is really required, I mean, there has been a consultation about Great British Railways, and I'm one of the people who've been consulted about it. 
Now, I mean, my view as an economist is basically this, that there are a number of functions on a railway system that have to be performed, and they all have to be performed well for the system to work. So there has to be a ticketing system and a freight charging system to bring in revenue. There have to be people to operate the trains, to drive them and to maintain security on them. There have to be people who finance the trains or finance the production of wagons. There has to be a track controller and signalling controller. So we can identify each of these functions and then we can say, as Adam Smith would have said 250 years ago, should we specialise each of these functions with a particular group of people who really know their stuff on that subject? If so, how do we then coordinate the work of those specialists? Now, if government would take that view, they could discuss whether coordination was best effected by a centralised system of planning uh, and the employment of all the managers within an overall overarching organisation, or whether they wanted to subcontract these different functions to different people. And if so, who would oversee the disputes that would arise between the different subcontractors, incidentally, in the course of the operation? But that conceptual framework is not in use. I have not seen any single instance of any person participating in the Great British Railways debate who has followed the sort of Adam Smith line of running a railway requires a combination of specialised functions, all of which must be performed to a high standard. Mm. What is the best system of coordination for delivering public benefit? Nobody is asking that question. In practice, what is happening is people are taking off-the-shelf historical methods. Some people favour a return to 1914. Some people favour a return to 1928. Some people want to go back to 1980. I mean, this is no way to discuss, you know, the future of the railway system. What epoch should we go back to? What we need is analysis using modern economic thinking, modern cost accounting techniques, modern, modern strategic management thinking, What's the best organisational structure and how much do incentives need to be devolved to individual companies operating within this structure? No discussion of that issue at all. Is there a piece of public policy that you think that could be enacted by the government to help bring us closer to that goal at the end of the day? Because that fundamentally, I think the public just and people as a whole just want the best functioning rail system that benefits the economy in the most in, in, in the most way it can, essentially. Is there a bit of public policy you think that they could implement that would help um, get us along those lines a little bit quicker than, you know, than we currently are? Yes, um, it would be involved, to some extent, doing what Richie Sunak's just done with the Northern Ireland Protocol. It requires somebody to step in and to say, look, let's work out a framework that the interested parties can agree on, a methodology by which we can arrive at a solution. And if we approve the methodology and we approve the evidence, then in principle we expect those involved to approve the solution. Now, Great British Railways was a step in the right direction. I think most people connected with the rail industry that I know are broadly in favour of the concept. But the problem is 
We thought we knew what it meant when it was announced. Now we have no idea what it means anymore, or even whether it's just a name change and, and, and really nothing else at all. Um, and so effectively, the one big thing that needs to happen is that we need some stability in the Department for Transport. We need a transport minister who's got the ear of the prime minister and who can mandate the Department for Transport to translate the Grant Shapps plan into a blueprint, an implementable blueprint, using, I would suggest, the framework I've set out to you. That is, identify the different functional areas and then consider how, you, how they relate to each other and how, how you might coordinate them best. Look at alternative methods of coordination and pick the least worst, which then becomes the best. How likely do you think that, that is to actually manifest itself in reality? I think it, it, it is in the hands of the politicians, really. Nobody else can do it if it's not signed off by the government, it's not going to happen. And um, the government at the moment has an awful lot of unsolved problems on its hands. So hopefully it will prioritize this problem. But you could understand it perhaps if under the circumstances, it isn't the first thing they, 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 they take a look at. But the sooner they take a look at it, the sooner we can avoid wasting resources on a grossly underperforming rail system. Hmm. How do you think the rail industry is going to change over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Is it going to become more interconnected? Are we going to see the incorporation of greater technology that's going to interconnect the country even more than before? Um, what kind of changes do you see coming on the horizon? I see potential for change, but for change to happen, you've got to have the institutional framework in place. You've got to have banks or government that's willing to stump up money to allow the changes to be made. You've got to have public that's willing to change their way of life or their habits to go along with it. So I think it's very difficult to make a prediction. As an economist, I, I do agree with the fact most economist predictions um, aren't worth the paper they're written on because nobody has that gifted insight of foreseeing what the future is going to be like. Mm. But what I can say is you can have a vision, one possible vision of what the future might be like. And my vision would be, firstly, of a drastically simplified timetable, which people could carry almost intuitively in their head. So, you know, I live and work in Reading. So if I knew that from, say, five in the morning to midnight, a, a fast train left Reading Station every 20 minutes, that would be better than my having to learn the timetable or, or go on, on the website. If I knew that it was always 5, 25, 45 minutes past the hour, then I could carry that information in my head. Mm -hmm. Then I would need to know, do I really have to go up to London and, and move to another terminus? in order to get to where I want to? Or can I actually go to Oxford or Bristol or somewhere, or, or, you know, somewhere in the Midlands to change? And the answer at the moment is that with the network being so weak on cross-country connections, if I don't go up to London, there aren't many options for other hubs I can go to. 
I could go to Bristol fairly easily from the West Country and South Wales. I could go to Birmingham fairly easily. But if I want to go up anywhere up the East Coast, I can't. I can't get there easily at all. Um, so I would want to see that rectified. I would want to see somebody come along and say, wherever you are, how are you going to get very simply, easily, memorably to anywhere else you want to go to? If we're going to have oil sea develop on off offshore wind farms in northeast Scotland, a lot of people are going to want to go to North sea Scotland, northeast Scotland on business or on pleasure or whatever. Um, what arrangements are being made to facilitate that? None, so far as I'm aware of. It's just got caught up in debates over disagreements over Scottish devolution. So wherever you turn, there, there seems to be a kind of political paralysis either between parties or between different parts of the United Kingdom or within parties. And so really, I think this vision has to come from outside the political system. And it really needs to me to be one that liberates civil servants um, to act who, who should be recruited on, on, on the basis of gaining long-term experience in their departments, not moving between partners every two to three years and therefore being jacks of all trades and masters of none. We really need to rebuild skills in the Department of Transport so it is not full of civil servants passing through, but civil servants who have a deep understanding of how to design and operate and optimise the performance of transport networks. So I think we really need a fresh start with our ideas of politics and government um, in order to deliver on any sort of futuristic vision of transport. I mean, just before we wrap up, I think since we're obviously on the topic of Reading and the fact that the Elizabeth Line now makes it all the way out to Reading, um, how do you think the expansion of the, the underground network in London all the way out to Reading, obviously it's not underground the entire way, but how do you think that expansion of the rail network is going to, in that isolated instance, is going to impact the economy in the South but also other areas in the UK? Well, I think the, the Elizabeth line is yet another wasted opportunity, I'm afraid. Although I understand that if you happen to have an Elizabeth line station within a 10 minute walk of your house, you're going to think it's a wonderful thing. There aren't that many people who are in that happy situation. When it was first promoted, there was a vision that trains might run through the centre of London uh, between, say, Bristol and Norwich or Southampton and uh, York or something like that. It was going to be a mainline transit point that would al allow through running. Um, that, of course, quickly disappeared. Why? Because Transport for London got involved and regional authorities got involved and then there had to be lots of committee structures and you finished up in the Elizabeth line with bizarre situations whereby network rail was specifying that the train should run on one set of standards and, tra and Transport for London, which runs a tube, was specifying that the train should run on tube standards. And this actually led to a delay in the opening of the Elizabeth line because the trains couldn't operate on the other tracks, um, all due to disputes within the people who were planning the line. Uh, we also have the situation that Oyster cards are valid beyond West Drayton because there's still a territorial dispute going on between Transport for London and the other stakeholders in the Elizabeth Line. The Elizabeth Line does not connect well with the rest of the underground network. 
It takes a long walk to move around Bond Street Station and Tottenham Court Road Station. There's, it doesn't serve King's Cross, which is one uh, which with St Pancras is a major departure zone for the north. That is not on the Elizabeth Line. Um, so really, in terms of what it was meant to do, I think it doesn't do it. And then when you consider the vast amount of money that's been spent and the sheer size of the sort of architectural spaces that have been opened up under central London, I think, it, I think it, it's, a, it, it's a jumbled up product of argument and mismanagement between different public bodies, all of which had conflicting agendas and never really reconciled those agendas properly. And I'm afraid that if we don't improve our act, the same thing's going to happen in Manchester and, uh, and in Scotland and in other parts of the United Kingdom, where too many quasi-government bodies are going to be arguing with each other over their conflicting requirements and producing very expensive and unsatisfactory compromise arrangements. Yeah, so... Well, thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate you sitting down and talking to me. And uh, um, is there any sort of research that you have coming out that you could want to point people to or um, any other sort of activities or projects you have in the works? The only thing I would point out to people is that there is a book called The World's First Railway System, which was published by Oxford University Press about 12 years ago, which is a definitive history of the economic and political evolution of the railway network and it shows you in a historical perspective how many of the issues that matter today played out in the past and one way of understanding today better is to understand the past better. I'm the author of the book, it's called World's First Railway System, it should be available on the internet or in your local library. Fantastic and thank you very much for your uh, professor for your time and uh... Hope you enjoyed that everyone and uh, see you soon. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like down below and comment what we would like to see discussed in future episodes. But until then, thank you.